The estate is released every Wednesday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want early access to next week's episode and ad-free listening, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV, Sonoro, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on The Estate. The whole church, everybody believed that we did this before we even had a chance. When I said, Rosie, I've got good news for you. They're dismissing your case. He says, I object. I want to be found not guilty by a jury. Did you ever have hope that you were not going to get convicted? Well, you always have hope. Always have hope. The dad I knew growing up was closed off, angry. Of all the lessons he taught me, the one that stands out now is that you can't trust people. Not entirely, at least. He had this saying, watch for the rope-a-dope. It's another boxing analogy. As dad explained it, people sometimes appear friendly, harmless, but they have their own agendas. Like a boxer on the ropes, they may look vulnerable or open, but it's just a ploy to get your guard down. Dad had a hard life. He grew up with 12 siblings in desperate poverty. But to me, childhood me, I didn't understand why my dad carried such a grim outlook on life. After everything I've learned, I get it. What I've realized is that the case against my dad and his best friend Calvin was only possible because the people closest to them, people they trusted, turned against them. From Sonoro in partnership with Tinderfoot TV, I'm Alex Estrada, and this is The Estate. It's the spring of 1983, almost 10 years after the murder of Anthony Virgilio. The trial has started in earnest, though some of the key players have left the scene. Patricia, the original prosecutor, has been recused because of her strange ties to the case. And my dad has been dismissed because of a lack of evidence. So now it's a heavyweight battle between prosecutor Yule Blancet and Calvin's attorney, Tony Chargan. The case is mostly circumstantial. They don't have the gun. They don't have the person who actually pulled the trigger. They have no physical evidence. But they do have a witness, someone who allegedly ties Calvin Jones directly to the murder. You'll describe the witness as one of the best he's ever had in a murder case. He was intelligent, street smart, quick-witted, had a good command of the English language, 
you know, everything you could possibly want in a witness, Clyde Holloway was that. Clyde Holloway was a manager at Port City Liquors, but he was more than just an employee. He was Calvin's friend, and they were close. They'd spend time at each other's homes, go to clubs, and take trips together. Jerry, Calvin's oldest son, remembers seeing Clyde around as a kid and considered him a friend of the family. I talked to Clyde a lot. I knew his car. I knew his family. I knew him very well. I trusted him. I actually trusted him because when you uh, spend that much time around a person and they don't really treat you poorly, you, you know, and you're 10, 12, you don't have a reason to not trust them. But once the trial got underway and Calvin was on the stand for murder, things changed. And then once this all came out, he kind of just disappeared and yeah, just you'd see him and he'd turn and walk away. I'm like, okay, I get you now, I understand. But yeah, when we were kids, when I was younger, he was always there. Clyde plays an important role for the prosecution from the very beginning. He is what ties Calvin to Tony on the night of the murder, New Year's Eve, 1973. And that night, he's interviewed by police and gives a simple, straightforward story. He went to the club, Calvin showed up a bit later, and they stayed at the bar drinking until about 7.30 at night. But then police start reviewing Rosie and Calvin's statements and decide they want another interview with Clyde. This time, his story changes. Here's a scene reconstructed based on police reports. Calvin says he has to go to Joe Michael's office. So I drive over to Joe Michael's office to wait for Calvin. Calvin's there in his car, and he tells me he wants to leave his car. And I said, cool, you can ride with me to the club. So we drive over together and have a few drinks. Clyde is now telling police that he met with Calvin in the parking lot of Joe Michael's office. This change in story matters because police believe the parking lot is the scene of the crime. And now they have a witness that places Calvin there. Police construct a theory around this new story, that Calvin lured Tony to the parking lot and left his car there on purpose, all to trick Tony into thinking that Calvin was there waiting for him, but only to be shot by the hired killer. Now, Clyde's explanation for the different versions is that he was confused and nervous. He's never been interviewed as part of a murder investigation. He submits to a psychological stress test, which is basically a type of lie detector that measures voice stress to tell if a person is being deceptive. Clyde shows stress for only two questions. One, did you see Tony in person? And two, do you know who killed Tony? The police determine they cannot rule out Clyde as a suspect, and they monitor him, Calvin, and Rosie. Clyde keeps his job at Port City Liquors, and three years later, he testifies in the litigation over Tony's insurance policy. On the stand in that case, Clyde repeats the same story. He picked up Calvin from Joe Michael's office, went to the club, then dropped him off later. But then, on April 3rd, 1980, Clyde's arrested for the murder. 
along with Calvin and Rosie. And that's when his story changes again. When he's picked up by the police, this time, Clyde asks specifically for Patricia Kaiser, who at this point is back at the DA's office. The interview between the two of them is not recorded and nobody takes any notes. But by the end of it, Clyde's charge is amended to an accessory after the fact, basically a slap on the wrist. By the very next day, he's got full immunity. In exchange, he gives his third version of what he witnessed that night. And this story is the one he would ultimately tell on the stand. I go back to Joe Michaels. Mr. Jones is waiting in his pickup. So Mr. Jones leaves his car at Joe Michaels' office, and we go to the club together. We're sitting in there at the bar, and we're having some drinks. And then uh, Mr. Jones looked at the clock, and he said, at that particular time, it should be just about over now. Okay. Is that all? No. What else? So I said, what? He said, Tony should be dead now. And I said, he must be kidding. And he said, no. I'm not. Did you say anything after that? I asked Mr. Jones, who did he have do it? And he said, Dat Hall. Not only does Clyde say that Calvin is the mastermind behind Tony's killing, but he also names the killer, the actual gunman, Ulysses Dat Hall, a friend of Calvin's. Clyde said that in the weeks leading up to the murder, he had seen Calvin and Rosie talking at the construction office. According to Clyde, Calvin was furious about Tony leaving the company and suggested that the insurance policy could get the company out of the hole and get the liquor store back on its feet. Clyde also spoke about several other incriminating incidents, like Rosie and Calvin setting aside money for the gunmen. Calvin talking about going to Oakland to buy an untraceable gun. He told the jury that he lied over seven years because he didn't want to be involved, and nearly 40 years later, that's still the case. Coming up after the break, we talk to Clyde Holloway. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It was a hot, sunny day in early spring when I dialed up the number for Clyde Holloway. I was half expecting the call to never pick up as it usually does with these fishing expeditions. So many people have refused to talk or are no longer with us. But this time. Hello. Hello, is this Clyde? Yeah. Hi Clyde, my name is Angelina. I'm a reporter. I'm calling because I am currently looking into a case from the 1970s, uh, one that involved a um, Tony Virgilio. And what about it? I'm I'm taking a look at at the case and just looking into um, the prosecution of of Calvin Jones. And I was hoping to speak with you about your role in the case. No, it's, it's, it's no role in the case. It's been the court, so just read the, just read the court documents. Oh, I've read through the court documents. Uh, okay, then. Well, that's the end of it. Well, well, that's why I'm calling you, because I wanted to know if, um, as a witness in the case, if you wanted to talk about no. your experience. Okay. Okay. Uh, can I ask why? Because it's over with. I don't want to talk about it. Simple as that. That's 20 years. What are you, what are you talking about? You're going to call oh, me about something that happened 20 years ago. So if you want to know something, read the court documents, and that's the end of it. Okay, I feel like you're a little upset right now. I'm so sorry. I didn't yeah, I'm, a, I'm upset with you calling me for something that happened over 20 years ago. You're right, I am upset. Can you help me understand why? No, no, I can't. Because it's not none of your business. If you, if you can't read, then you don't need to know nothing. Okay. Well, I am investigating this on, on behalf of... Well, help of yourself. Help yourself. Investigate all you want. Just don't okay. call me again. Um, I respect someone not wanting to be involved, but we did try to call him again because he's a key witness and the reason why someone who says they're innocent spent 30 years in prison. But he refused to speak with us again. So without Clyde telling us, it's hard to pinpoint his exact motivations then and now. But there is something disturbing that happened seven months after Tony's murder. Something that might explain Clyde's change in statement. And it has to do with an altercation with a police officer. 
I have very few recordings of my dad. We weren't really a family that did home videos, but I do have a cassette tape of him. It's from the 90s, so it's not the best quality. And in it, he's actually talking about Clyde. For the first time on this podcast, you are about to hear a story in my dad's own words from him. This is a conversation he had with a private investigator a decade after the trial. Well, what had happened was that Clyde was at a party with his girlfriend. They came to the door, so he turned on the music, he said no, they called the police out, they're taking him to jail, and he cop Clyde says the cop hits him behind the thing. And he turns around and uh, and another cop hits him in the back, right? And knocked the hell out of him. My dad describes a time where Clyde was with his girlfriend. Apparently, the people next door told Clyde to turn down the music, but he wouldn't. So the cops show up. It's a little hard to make out what my dad says next, but what he describes is the police beating Clyde. Any account of police brutality is horrible. But if getting beaten and brought into the police station for not turning down your music isn't bad enough, there's a sick twist. According to my dad, they beat Clyde because they thought he was Calvin. Both men are black. And all the time they were beating him up, they said they thought he was Calvin Jones. Well, they put down a report, a police report, and in the ABC report that it was Calvin Jones who started the disturbance. My dad and Calvin paid the $6,000 to bail Clyde out of jail. And while they're there, Calvin saw that the police report named him as the perp. Calvin and I said, what the hell is this? <laughs> I wasn't even involved. But they had on the police reports, Clyde said they came down. One of the guys came down and said, well, you know, it's on the air. We should come on. We got Calvin. We were going to put the shot of him. I mean, that's how bad it was. When my dad says that's how bad it was, to me, that can only mean that's how bad the police were after him and Calvin. The authorities were happy to take any opportunity they could to hurt them, even if it meant collateral damage. Hearing my dad's voice is strange. Listening to him tell a story that he never shared with me or my siblings, it's like I'm reading his diary or something. But it also makes me sad, because I realized my dad was so different than the person I thought he was. And I wish he had shared this with me, so I could have understood him better. Understood what he went through. Jerry, Calvin's oldest son, remembers hearing of another incident between the police and Clyde. This would be years later, after they were all finally charged with the murder. As I understand, he was threatened. I may not have the information correct, but that's what I remember. And I know this was after the charges were filed. I do remember being in high school and going, oh, man, they, they showed him. He was just, they, they did him bad. They did him really bad. Jerry and my dad believe Clyde testified to save himself. And they were right. Clyde said so on the stand to Calvin's lawyer. My question is, were you concerned about yourself as far as your personal safety? I was, because I was charged with something I had nothing to do with. 
weren't you concerned to some extent because you felt and believed that the police would fabricate evidence to stick you with the murder if they had to? Yes. So, during the trial, Clyde admits that he believed the police would fabricate evidence and put the murder of Tony Virgilio on him if he didn't cooperate. But in a brief call where I attempted to talk to Clyde, he denied that the DA or the police threatened or coerced him to make up his testimony. He didn't give me permission to record, and that was pretty much the only thing he said before he hung up. When Clyde testified against Calvin and Rosie, a lot of people were angry, including Brian, Calvin's younger son. I've been in rooms with him before, and it was just like, I could have choked him in that room, and he did not know who I was. Shook his hand and everything, and he's looking at me in my eye, talking to me like, hey, young man, good to see you, son, son, you look familiar. And I'm like, oh, really? Motherfucker, I'll choke you right now. This sense of betrayal was palpable. The idea that someone close to you, close to your father, could be the reason he's taken away from you. That's how Calvin's sons feel. Here's Jerry, the oldest. You're the reason why we're all struggling right now. And I don't mean necessarily financially or anything like that, but as a family, that was a huge hit to our family to take our male leader, one of our male leaders away from us. And to take that away from someone at that point in time is very traumatic on a family. Calvin's sons say they weren't angry because Clyde testified against Calvin, but because they felt he had lied to protect himself. They believed that then, and they still do now. And so... Um, I was really, I was upset. I was angry. And I knew that at that point, Clyde was not being honest. And me being an honest person, I was ready to hurt him. Brian says they weren't the only ones who despised Clyde. Rosie did too. Yeah, Rosalia didn't like him. And he said, I warned your dad about him, just a snake. They kept him alive. They kept that fool alive. Like he ate off them. Brian, like his brother Jerry, believes Clyde's allegations against Calvin are all made up. And he turned just because he got involved in something else and got in trouble and and turned and told, like, oh, yeah, they did it. I know he had some information, but I don't think that he knew anything about any of that. I think he made all of it up. We brought our concerns about Clyde Holloway to the lead prosecutor, Ewell Blancet. But, Mr. Blancet, how, yeah. how can we view Clyde Holloway? I mean, Clyde Holloway, according to police reports, if I'm not mistaken, was brutalized by police. And he also said on the stand, this is court record, that the reason he's cooperating is because out of fear that the prosecution would hang this crime on him. Yeah, I I have no recollection of that whatsoever. So I, uh, the whatever else you're bringing up in regards to Clyde Holloway, I have no recollection whatsoever. I just can picture him in my mind on the witness stand uh, eating Tony Shargan alive. <laughs> he was that good of a witness. 
In total, the prosecution called about 50 witnesses, which is a lot. By comparison, the Ted Bundy trial only called 49. Yes, Ted Bundy, one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. In short, Calvin's trial was an epic undertaking. The prosecution's parade of witnesses talked about the business being in trouble and how Virgilio felt about his partners, but none could directly tie Calvin to the crime. The witnesses was all people that we didn't know. It's all circumstantial. And on a circumstantial case, it's just whatever they say. Whoever makes the best story up. It's a grueling trial, but after three long months, it's coming to an end. We're now at closing arguments, and Calvin's lawyer, Tony Chargan, emphasizes the lack of evidence. The case was built on hearsay. The police investigation was inadequate. The star witness was offered an immunity deal, and there's no physical evidence. After seven hours of deliberation, the jury comes back with a verdict. Guilty. If you were following the case at all, it wasn't hard to see this coming. In a newspaper report covering the verdict, the jury foreman is quoted as saying, the jury has been conducting dry runs throughout the trial and concluded that Calvin was guilty from the start. So that's it. Two months later, Calvin is sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after seven years. Calvin said adjusting to prison was one of the worst experiences of his life. Well, I thought I had died and went to hell. That's how I felt. So, I mean, I didn't know. I'd never been in prison before. Never been in jail before. They had told me, the district attorney would told me I would die in the penitentiary. He would make sure of that. As we mentioned before, Calvin became eligible for parole seven years after his sentence. So how does seven years become 30? That comes down to California's parole law. In essence, to get parole, you have to admit responsibility for the crime. And that was something Calvin didn't do and never was going to do. So I start focusing on how I'm gonna get out but the only problem I have with that is that in order to get out, you have to admit to the crime, and which I never did, and I still wouldn't because I didn't do it. But for me, that brings up a question. If Calvin is serving a life sentence and he doesn't see any way of getting out, why didn't he just admit to killing Tony to reduce his sentence? Well, I mean, why don't you just say... I did it. Because that would have been totally against what all my family knew. It's not my character. And I had sons, I had relatives that had stayed with me all this time. What I could say, I'm just lying to them. I lied to them all this time. And I didn't do it. But I'm, I'm sure they would have understood, you know, like... Grandpa, we just want you to come home, or Dad, just, you know, you're out for parole, like, this time. Well, that's, that's not me. I couldn't do 
because the next thing they're going to say is that, okay, you admitted to it. Who else was involved? Oh, I got to name somebody you want me to name and put them in prison and change their whole life because I want to get out? That's not fair. Calvin worked really hard to appeal his case on several grounds, including the jury selection and ineffective assistance of counsel. Once those avenues were exhausted, he wrote habeas petitions, but each time the courts denied his appeals. Because to be exonerated is actually really rare. In most cases, to have any shot at overturning a conviction, you need to have new evidence. That means a key witness needs to admit that they lied on the stand, or someone else has to confess to the crime. And that's almost impossible in this case. Clyde Holloway isn't budging. Cleon Weaver is dead. Who's left to talk to? Well, Randy Bell has a theory. We've heard from her before. She was a good friend of Rosie's, and today she's working for the lawyer who represents Calvin. She says there's one person who could potentially get the case overturned. To this day, no one has been convicted as the actual killer, the person who pulled the trigger and took Tony's life. Police suspected one man all along, Ulysses' dad, Paul. And it's always been said that Dad Hall was the shooter. Dad Hall has never denied he was the shooter, has never said anything on the record about it. So if Dad Hall said, I'm not the shooter, I wasn't the shooter, and I never had anything, any conversation with Calvin about this, at least something could be opened up because they never questioned Dad Hall. He never testified. Don't you find that strange? According to Randy, he's the key to cracking this whole thing wide open. Next time on The Estate, we talk to Ulysses' dad, Hall. The Estate was produced by Sonoro in partnership with Tinderfoot TV. Hosted by me. Alex Estrada, and Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Reported by Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Investigated by Angelina Mosier-Salazar, Alex Estrada, and Evelyn Uribe. Written by Angelina Mosier-Salazar and Alex Estrada. With help from Evelyn Uribe and Carlos Arenado. Edited by Ross Terrell and Jasmine Romero. Fact check by Sarah Moda and Evelyn Uribe. Mix and sound design by Manuel Parra and Daniel Padilla. Engineering by Josh Hahn, Sam Baer, and Brett Tubin at the Relic Room in New York City. Original music by Ernesto Aguirre. Our theme song is by Marcus Bagala. Executive produced by Alex Estrada. From Sonoro, executive producers are Joshua Weinstein and Camila Victoriano. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Special thanks to Lisa Pollock, Sarah Boannon, Christian Yatar, Rodrigo Crespo, Carmen Graterol, and Adriana Broger 